Let's finish our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Throughout Eastertide, we have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, and here we come to the end. I'm going to read all of chapter 12. I know you heard some of it last week. Thank you, Bethany, for teaching the congregation last week. What a gift to this church. Let's open our hearts and hear the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you'll say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light of the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds disappear after the rain, when those who keep watch over the house begin to tremble and the virile men begin to stoop over and the grinders begin to cease because they grow few and those who look through the windows grow dim and the doors along the street are shut. Then the sounds of the grinding mills grows low and one is awakened by the sound of a bird and all their songs grow faint and they are afraid of heights and the dangers in the street. The almond blossoms grow white and the grasshopper drags itself along and the caperberry shrivels up because man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is removed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the well, or the water wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the life's breath returns to God who gave it. Absolutely futile, laments the teacher. All these things are futile. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also taught knowledge to the people. He carefully evaluated and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful words and to write accurately truthful sayings. The words of the sages are like prods and the collected sayings are like firmly fixed nails. They are given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. There is no end to the making of many books and much study is exhausting to the body. Having heard everything, I have reached this conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. For God will evaluate every deed, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, for generations, your people have been understanding the world in a different way thanks to the words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. And we ask, Lord, that we too would gather these words together, look at them with sober minds, and understand what you're calling us to do with the life that we have. Lord, have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, the beginning of chapter 12 is really quite a beautiful and haunting poem, and yet it's also the, uh, you know, another low point of Ecclesiastes. Remember your creator is the first line, and then again and again and again, all of these images of us losing our abilities, of the world growing dark, of life fading and slipping through our fingers. Absolutely futile, says the teacher. Everything is futile. This is one of the low points of Ecclesiastes, of course. And at many of the low points in Ecclesiastes, when the teacher looks at life under the sun and the ridiculous ways people like us occupy ourselves in the life under the sun, he, he uses this theme word, futile, utterly futile. We, we said that's the word hevel. But at many points throughout Ecclesiastes, he adds a definition. He explains what he means when he says futile. At many different points, he says, these things are futile, like chasing the wind. That gets repeated throughout the book. Futile, like chasing the wind. Wind, something you can never catch, something you cannot predict, something you cannot hold in your hand, even though you can feel it. Even the wind within you will fade. Or as the teacher says, we should remember our creator before the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the life's breath, that's the word for wind, returns to God who gave it. I want to talk about wind here to start. Wind is one of the most uh, important images in the Bible. When you see wind you should know it's, there's big things happening when you see mention of wind. Before there is anything, before a word of creation is spoken, there is wind. Look at Genesis 1-2. While the earth is formless over the waters of the deep, it says, a wind of God swept over the surface of the watery chaos. The wind of God, the Spirit of God is present. Wind, interesting. You can chase after it, but when you're chasing wind, you don't feel it as much. But the wind of God represents the presence of God. In Genesis chapter 2, wind shows up again. God forms the dust of the earth into a man, and he breathes into it the breath of life. What's that breath? It's the word for wind. There it is, Again, in Genesis chapter 3, just after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard. When? At the breezy time of day. It's the same word, wind. The wind reminds them of God's presence. And so they hid. They avoid the wind. Later on in the book of Genesis, you know, God floods the earth in the story of Noah. And when finally God is done with the judgment, it says the wind blows over the earth and the waters recede. God's wind brings order out of the chaos. If you go into the book of Exodus, you'll see the plagues that set people free from Egypt. And several of the plagues are blown into Egypt by the wind, especially the various insect plagues. They, plagues, they come on the wind. When the people get out to the Red Sea and they think they're trapped, it's wind that parts the waters. 
God's wind blows. When the people are starving in the wilderness, wind blows quail in. And they eat until, as it says, quail is coming out of their noses. Which is a striking moment. We won't talk about that. Wind is regularly a symbol of the mysterious presence and power of God. The prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah saw wind as a sign of God's judgment. They, they saw our lives as the chaff that is blown away in the wind if we've wasted our lives on fruitless things. That's dead hypocrisy. And outside of Ecclesiastes, no one talks about wind more than the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a weird prophet. Man, he does some weird stuff. But throughout the book of Ezekiel, he hardly walks anywhere. You know, Ezekiel gets around, the wind picks him up and carries him places. And then he's in a new place and he gives a new prophecy. And in chapter 37, Ezekiel has a vision of this valley of dry bones and it represents the dead people of God, the people of Israel. They're totally dead. And a voice of God comes to Ezekiel telling him, prophesy to the wind and cause the wind to blow over the dead people and the Lord will bring them back to life. Hmm. You know that moment in the garden, Adam and Eve hid from the wind and Ecclesiastes seems to say that we've been hiding from it, avoiding it, chasing it so we don't feel it ever since. And the closing passages of Ecclesiastes, they don't leave us adrift in the storm. They don't just leave us chasing the wind. They give us a way to catch it. It walks us through the options that we have for how we will deal with the wind. And it comes down to two things. We can either remember or we can forget. These are the two options left to us. Remembering. Perhaps you're, uh, you're not sure what to do with the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't blame you. Except for a few moments, it's a downer. As Bethany said, it's angsty. This is an angsty book. The teacher won't let us forget how small and brief our lives are. How insignificant we are when we consider the age and size and scope of the universe. My goodness, we are tiny and brief. But if you look closer, you will find that Ecclesiastes is a particularly important reflection on the beginning of the story. I'm talking about the Garden of Eden. Ecclesiastes uses Garden of Eden imagery all throughout. It's calling our minds back to the beginning. It's dripping with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Anytime he talks about life under the sun, he's recalling the creation of the sun, the light's in the heavens, and how when we're outside of the garden, we don't have the shade of the trees to block it. Whenever it talks about toiling and laboring with very little enjoyment of the fruit, it's talking about the consequences of the fall. When God tells Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, too. Ecclesiastes says it in a hundred different ways. That's true. 
we face that toil. It's true for the rich and for the poor, for the slave and for the master, the man and the woman, the wise and the fool. It's true for all of us. So what do we do with that knowledge? In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember your Creator. Why why say it like this? There are a few moments in Ecclesiastes where the curmudgeon, you know, the teacher, he comes up for air. He lets the sun shine on his face and and is happy for a fleeting moment. And then he goes back to, you know, telling us how terrible things are. All right, and this, this is a moment. These are the moments that he returns back to the garden before the fall. So how do we do it? We remember. Remembering is the word zakar. Zakar, if you see the name Zachariah in the Bible, that's a person who remembers. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you have the creation of of people in God's image, and it says male and female, he created them. Guess what the word for male is? Zakar. Fundamental to who we are as being created in God's image are are those who remember. It's not a coincidence. We remember our creator. How do you remember? Remembering your creator is not the same as remembering your phone number, which I understand very few of us even need to do that anymore. I can still remember my childhood phone number, 6940608. Call that. I wonder who will pick up. But, you know, that knowledge does nothing for me anymore. I I know no one connected to that phone number. It's not like remembering a fact or figure like that. This remembering is more like remembering a life-changing appointment. You have an interview for your dream job. You're not going to forget that. You're going to build your days leading up to that around that interview. That's the kind of remembering. The knowledge of that happening, you remember it. It's, it, it remains in your mind. It remains a constant object to you. That's the remember that this is talking about. This is not about developing mnemonic devices. This is remembering in the sense of maintaining a relationship, an active awareness that is paired with speech and action. It shapes our lives. So how do we remember our Creator? Well, without ever using the word, I believe the book of Ecclesiastes is a call to the Sabbath. I think throughout, this has been a persuasive speech. It's like, you know, remember the persuasive speech contest in high school or college? You know, this has been a persuasive speech in favor, favor (laughs) of Sabbath. And here is an obvious place. The, The command to Sabbath is the fourth commandment. And how does it start? Remember the Sabbath. It's the same phrase. Remember your Creator. Remember the Sabbath. We remember our Creator by remembering the Sabbath. Do you know the fourth commandment continues? Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. For in six days the Lord God created the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh he rested. What's it talking about? He's the Creator. We remember the Creator by stopping to receive and enjoy His good creation. The Sabbath is the appointment that we don't want to miss, you guys. And it happens every week. Otherwise, we forget. We remember things like this by reciting them. 
I just shared about Bob and Jane. You know, he says, remember your creator while you're young, you know, which might be saying, like, while you still can, because, you know, it gets harder and harder to remember things the older and older we get. I have a little bit of gray in my beard. I can kind of understand. Okay. <laughs> but I've been thinking about Bob. If you've ever talked to Bob, here's what Bob does. He recites the stories of God's faithfulness in his life. Every time you talk to him. I mean, you end up having to say, Bob, I have to go. All right? <laughs> I don't know. But he, he, just one story leads to another, leads to another. And he is reciting the stories of God's faithfulness. How, his miraculous healing from cancer. Opportunities that he had to witness to someone in a strange situation. And again and again, he's reciting these stories. That's how we remember. We recite by keeping the Sabbath. The other option is to forget. Friends, if you don't hold that knowledge, if you don't practice it, if you don't recite it, it fades. It fades. I signed up for a summer basketball team, which is a bad idea. And, um, and I haven't like shot a basketball in a few years. So in the last couple of weeks, I went out the, to the gym. It's like open every day here. So, you know, for brain breaks, I'm going from my office to the gym. And I shot like one for 20 on layups. I hadn't been reciting with my body. My body had forgotten how to do it. This is what he's talking about. This is a reflection on how as we get near to death, if we haven't practiced remembering, we forget what is forgetting? It's not necessarily failing to retain the knowledge of something. It's failing to act in accordance with it. That's what this is talking about. Set the pattern of remembering before you think you need it. In college, uh, every freshman in my college had to take this silly class called Fit for Life. Fit for Life. You know, it was taught by the, the track and field coach, uh, Professor Smelly, I mean, you can't make this up. <laughs> He's actually a great guy, but his name was Professor Smelly. So, and here, here's what he said to us again and again. He said, the habits that you begin while you are in college will shape the rest of your life. When you're 18, 19, 20, 21, when you, if you start habits now, it will be much easier to keep them later. You won't have to start them later. That's what this is talking about. This is a call to seize the day. This poem and all its imagery is saying, don't let it get to that point. A day may come when you can't Remember, eventually the sun, the light of the moon, and the stars will grow dark. Oh, Genesis 1, anybody? Yeah. Uh, the workers are told, become too old to do their work. Our bodies become feeble. Our fears begin to grow. Our, our romantic drive begins to fade. The teacher knows that he himself is losing his capacities. He watched his father fade away in his old age. He, know it's, he knows it's coming. This is a moving call to set our trajectory, to remember our creator. Remember now by stopping to rest now. The cycle God set for us, Americans, is not to work yourself to the bone for 50 years and then rest. That's not the cycle God set for us. 
It's to work for six days and truly deeply rest for one, to set that pattern into our lives. Do not trick yourself into thinking that you can rest later. Don't. According to the fourth commandment, you will forget your creator if you do that, if you work with no rest. Ecclesiastes has been a study in forgetting. Ironically, we forget when we try to know too much, when we try to be too wise, when we try to be too righteous, righteous for ourselves. We, we forget when we become fixated on acquiring wealth or, or pleasure or power to the point that we're never satisfied. That's when we have forgotten. We forget when we become workaholics and never stop to enjoy it. We toil and toil and toil in a desperate attempt to save ourselves. We forget when we become lazy when we squander the daylight with frivolities. That's what Ecclesiastes says. That's how we forget. Ecclesiastes laments that people have spent their lives chasing the wind, and so they've never actually felt it. The more we chase the wind, the more we forget our creator. It's futile. If you do that, everything is futile. And that's where the words of the teacher end. And so... There's another voice that comes in in Ecclesiastes. He was there at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, saying, hey, here's some words from the teacher. And then the teacher speaks until midway through chapter 12. And then this other voice comes back, the editor, let's call him. And he says, hey, this, this is what the teacher had to say. You know, he was wise. He gathered some proverbs together. You know, don't try to add to his words. You know, he's said enough. There's endless books about all this stuff, but he kind of captured the point. The teacher's observations have driven him, it seems, into a cold despair. He ends without hope. He speaks as one who has missed his chance. He's shouting his abdication back from the edge of the grave. I give up. But the teacher's not the only voice. The editor speaks up. He gives the teacher his due. Yeah, you should listen to him. But then he says, now let me add, let me say just a couple things in application for you. Here's what to do with the teacher's insights. Fear God, keep his commandments, and remember, God will evaluate everything. This is how we actually catch the wind. We fear, we obey, and we confess. Let me go through these things quickly. Fearing. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that if you lay down in a windstorm, you will never feel the power of the wind. You won't understand its power. Now there he's talking about temptation. He's saying if you lay down quickly when you're tempted, you don't know the strength of the temptation or your strength to stand up to it. The only way you can know the full strength of the wind, he says, is if you stand and take it. I think we can apply that not just to temptation, but to the presence and power of the Lord. It may very well be that the teacher has faded in his fear of the Lord. I think he's got this distance relationship with the Lord. Bethany talked about it like fighting instead of wrestling. It's this distant, trying to avoid him type relationship. If it truly is Solomon, Solomon at the end of his life drifted in his faithfulness to Yahweh, and it was disastrous for the kingdom. Fear of the Lord is catching the wind, not chasing it. This is the irony. You cannot catch the wind if you chase it. Only if you stop and are caught by it. And throughout Ecclesiastes, 
we've, we've benefited from this image that, that we think came from Dallas Willard. Yeah, Dallas Willard. Um, Stephen mentioned it first in a sermon, and I, so I'm quoting Stephen, who's quoting Dallas Willard. But this idea that many people treat the Christian life like a rowboat trying to get somewhere, when in reality, biblically, the Christian life is best described as being in a sailboat. We put up our sails and let the wind carry us. What a great illustration. How do we do that? By fearing the Lord. That's kind of a strange idea, fearing the Lord. I mean, that doesn't mean running and hiding because he's so dangerous. It's more like this. Imagine you have a piano recital and, you know, your friends and family come and then Beethoven walks in and sits in the back row and how that would feel. Or imagine you're shooting hoops in the gym, you know, just messing around, and Michael Jordan walks in to observe you. Many of you know uh, the story of how Aaron and I got reacquainted after college. I was already pastor, um, and, you know, the, it was a, a smaller Sunday than this. You know, we had maybe 20 regulars is, you know, just a, a time of the church's life that was quite small. And, uh, and I was dating this girl, and she came for the first time with a friend of hers to kind of see, like, what's Mike like as a pastor, you know? So they're there. And then uh, Amy Vogt, who was part of our church and went to college, you know, seven of her best friends flew into town and were here. So that's, that's 10 women my age. I was a single guy <laughs> out of, like, 30 people who, in my mind, this isn't true, they were probably genuinely worshiping, but in my mind, they were there to analyze and evaluate me. <laughs> and so there wasn't a move of my muscle or a word out of my mouth. And some things went weird and wrong that Sunday, I will assure you. Um, but that, that feeling is the fear of the Lord. <laughs> That's what I experienced that day. I was aware, hyper-aware, of their glorious and one of their beautiful presence. In fact, just later that day, I called Amy and said, Hey, is Aaron still in town? And that's how we got back together. We fear, we also obey. God's command calls us from death to life, and we obey it. This week, Mike Kirstens and I were chatting. We were talking about Lazarus. And how Lazarus, you know, likely he's at the wedding feast. He's celebrating with God. And all of a sudden there's this voice from outside his tomb saying, Lazarus, come out. We were imagining what he said to the people around the table. Jesus is calling. I gotta, I'll be right back. I got to go. You know, like, save this for me. You know, but he, he responded. He's called from death to life. And that's the call that we each receive. You were dead in your trespasses, Paul writes, but God, out of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. By grace, you've been saved. That's the call we obey. How do you catch the wind? You respond to that call and you come alive. You follow his voice out of the grave into the gracious joy away from Genesis 3 back to Genesis chapter 2, back to the garden. Obedience is not a matter of going through the motions of rote obedience. 
It's the means by which we are connected to the generous grace of God. You know what God wants us to do? To receive and then freely give. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. We don't give anything back to him. We receive. That's how we glorify him. Consider the radical grace of God. When, when the rabbis tried to summarize all of the laws, they said, here's the summary of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus agreed. What a, what a joyful obedience we're called to. They're all designed, all the laws, all the ceremonies, all the sacrifices to bring us back to that. And yet we forget, we depart. And so we must confess. The book ends with one last reason to fear God. I mean, the last sentence of the book is, for God will evaluate everything, you know, your secret thoughts, your secret deeds. Have a great Sunday. You know, I mean, that, that's the end. That's how he finishes. What's this calling us to do? It's initially terrifying and hopeless, but it invites us into one last act of fearing and obeying, and that's confessing. And Christians, we get to confess in two directions. First, just like we practice every Sunday, we confess our sins. We practice this again and again. Our sins of commission, the things we have done that are sinful, and our sins of omission the things we have avoided, the sins of our hands and the sins of our hearts. We confess it all, the sins of our lips and the sins that stay in our heads. That's the first type of confession, who we are. But we also confess God's grace. I mean, read if you go to the classic layouts of Christian theology, what are they called? They're called a confession of faith. They're talking about who God is. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Why? Because in full knowledge of every deed, every secret thing, whether good or evil, God has offered his only begotten son as the substitutionary sacrifice for us. Will God remember your every deed? The answer is, if you want him to. If you want him to, he will. Here's what I mean. We are given the option in the day of judgment to say, I'm here representing myself. Look at it all and decide about me. Or to say, he's here representing me. That's what, that's the, what the Christian life comes down to, friends. Do you represent yourself or is Jesus Christ representing you? In recognition of the crushing weight of your sin, you are given the opportunity to fall upon Jesus, and he will stand in your stead as your mediator, as your representative, as your great high priest, as the perfect atoning sacrifice. When God goes to evaluate every deed, every secret thing, whether good or evil, his attention will be fixed on the perfectly obedient life of Jesus That's the gospel. That's what is offered to us. He will judge you on the merits of Jesus. So, if you want to stand for yourself, that's bad news. But if you understand your sin and his grace, 
That's the best news in history. Today in the church calendar, as we've said, is Pentecost Sunday. On the first Pentecost Sunday, Jesus had risen, he had ascended, and he had told his followers, wait, wait here in Jerusalem. What do we do now? Well, we obey. We wait. They were supposed to put up their sails. The wind will come to you. And on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to the followers of Jesus. Let me read to you how it happened. I don't think I have this on a slide. But this is Acts chapter 2. Now, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a violent wind blowing came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And tongues spreading out like a fire appeared to them and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. They caught the wind, you guys. By waiting, they caught it. And when we remember, when we fear, when we obey, when we confess... We're putting up our sails. We're in a position for the wind of God to blow on us. And it's Pentecost. Let's do it. Let's receive the wind of God. Let's rest in his grace and in Jesus' perfect righteousness on our behalf. Pray with me. Father, As we read the words of Ecclesiastes, we see many, many days of our lives displayed before us. As we read the words of Ecclesiastes, we see many of our toiling neighbors' faces. And I pray, Lord, that Ecclesiastes would truly be a call to the true Sabbath rest, which we are given in your Son, Jesus, that we would stop surrender, remember, and receive. Lord, thank you for sharpening us and challenging us with Ecclesiastes. We love you. We pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen.